In our last study, we began to describe some things that are important for anyone to understand the Bible, read the Bible, preach and teach the Bible. And not only what the leadership should be doing in preaching and teaching and understanding, but also those who are listening, the people of the church, they should expect it and they should do likewise whenever they read the Bible and study the Bible. We emphasized last time the fact that we must read the whole Bible We must know what's in the Bible and expect the whole Bible to be taught to one another. We want to know what God says, not what man says. If we mix man's opinions with God's word, then it ends up coming out perverted, polluted, and we will perish. So we need to know only what God says. We should all have that mindset. Today... We'll continue with some issues related to the interpretation of the Bible. It's entitled, Assumptions and Methods in the Interpretation of the Old and New Testaments. We'll be making some points, several points, and then briefly going to one or two scriptures to show and illustrate each point. What is it that we should understand when we approach the Bible to interpret the Bible? How can we make sure we are interpreting the Bible accurately? 2 Timothy 2.15. How is it that we can make sure that we can be powerful or mighty in the scriptures like Apollos was? Acts 18.24-28. How can we be that way? Well, here are some points of interpretation Everyone, the first point, everyone has assumptions and methods, whether he admits it or not. Therefore, we must be honest and choose the right ones. Everyone has assumptions and methods. Many uh, interpreters deny that they have assumptions or presuppositions. They don't assume anything. No, no, they are very objective people, they say, they claim. They don't have any assumptions, no uh, preconceived notions. They have nothing. The reality is everybody does. So if everybody does, we should be honest about it and then figure out which assumptions and methods are the right ones and then use those. To show that one could have true and false assumptions. First, a false assumption from Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, 18 to 27. Mark 12, 18. The Sadducees approach Christ with a question. To stump him, to perplex him, yet they are unsuccessful. And they show their false assumptions or false presuppositions. Mark 12, 18. And some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us a law that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should take his, the wife and raise up offspring to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first one took a wife and died, leaving no offspring. And the second one took her and died, leaving behind no offspring. And the third, likewise. And so all seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. The Sadducees, as Luke tells us, or Mark tells us, in Mark 12:18 Mark tells us that 
they believe there is no resurrection. They assume that there is no resurrection, and then any scenario presented to them, they use it against people who believe in resurrection. Their false assumption is no resurrection. And then the scenario is presented. Oh, a woman has been married seven times and no children. <coughs> so if there is a day of resurrection, their objection is, well, which man is going to be married to that woman since seven men had married her and they all died in turn? So in heaven, if resurrection is true, what are they also assuming? In heaven, marriage is true. So they made another false assumption that there is marriage in heaven. But Jesus says that, that there is no marriage in heaven in verse 25. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. There's no marriage in heaven. So the one woman does not need to choose which man, or the man does not need to choose the woman, whichever man. Or God does not need to decide because there is no decision to make. They falsely assumed that there would be marriage. Another false assumption is that they are correct and those who believe in resurrection are incorrect. But Jesus puts them in place twice. Verses 24 and 27, he says, you are mistaken. You are greatly mistaken. You are mistaken and greatly mistaken. They assume they are correct, and Jesus has to tell them, no, you are incorrect. You are mistaken. <coughs> Further, they assume they understand the Scriptures. When Jesus says in verse 24, you do not understand the Scriptures. They think they know what it says, but they don't really know what it says. They have cultic knowledge of the Scripture. Also, they think they understand the power of God. But they have failed to understand the power of God because if they truly believed in the power of God, they would believe in the power of God to raise the dead. So they don't really believe in supernaturalism or the power of God to raise the dead. Also 27. <clears throat> 27. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. They assume that God is the God of the dead. As though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead. Their spirits don't exist because their bodies have died. And in the period of the time of Moses, verse 26, God says to Moses hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died, that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't say, I was the God but I am the God to Moses. That means that, God, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are living. If they are living as spirits, why are they temporarily living as spirits? Because there's a day of resurrection when their spirits will be united to their bodies. You see this example? False assumptions. Their false assumptions on several matters cause them to deny the resurrection of the dead. Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. More on assumptions. Romans 6. Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Aha, they say. Aha. We're not under law, we're under grace. Okay, they falsely assume or falsely conclude what Paul means here without taking into consideration what he has been saying since verse 1 of this chapter even what he has been saying earlier in the chapters in Romans, or even what he's about to say later. They don't take him correctly, understand him correctly, so they don't understand the Scriptures, nor the power of God. 
Why? Because when he says you are not under law but under grace, he's speaking of the fact that the grace of God empowers them to overcome sin without being under the penalty of the law they are now under the blessings of grace and therefore grace enables them to overcome sin so that false assumption notice the apostle anticipated it in verse 15 just like it happens today what then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace may it never be but today people say yes People today say, yes, we're not under law. We're not under the Old Testament. We're under the New Testament, grace, so we can sin. Yet the apostle, anticipating that, says, may it never be. Then, verse 16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? In their pomp, they claim to know. They claim to have wisdom to know. But the apostle puts them in place. You don't really know. You claim to know. You think you know, but you don't really know. He says, do you not know? You don't know. And you should know. You don't know the right thing. And who doesn't understand? If you present yourself to someone as slaves, you're either going to be a slave for obedience or slaves of disobedience, slaves of sin, resulting in death, or obedience resulting in righteousness. Isn't that the way life works? If that's the way life works, then why don't they know it? They who claim to be so brilliant in understanding grace and law. They're not brilliant. They have some false assumptions. And they have ignorance. They don't understand the scriptures, nor the power of God. Okay, so we have assumptions. The question is, which ones are correct based on the, an accurate understanding of the scriptures? Next, the second point. We should always prayerfully and humbly Read the Bible. Always prayerfully and humbly read the Bible. Psalm 119. Psalm 119, 18. Psalm 119, 18. Here we have some prayers. Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. This is a prayer of anticipation. Acknowledgement that the eyes must be opened, but the anticipation is for wonderful things to be revealed. 27, 119.27. Make me understand the way of your precepts, so I will meditate on your wonders. Make me understand. I don't understand. I need to understand. So... The prayer is to make me understand. Verse 33. Notice in 33 to 40 how many prayer requests there are here to be enlightened and to follow God's word. Both to be enlightened and then to follow it. 33. <coughs> Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Turn away my reproach which I dread, for your ordinances are good. 
Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. These are humble prayers to understand God's word and then obey it. Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. God is explaining his greatness in verses 1 and 2. His self-sufficiency, self-existence, and his greatness and power in verses 1 and 2. Having explained who he is, who does God regard? Who does God esteem? Who does God look at? He says, but to this one I will look. God considers, regards, esteems the one who's humble, contrite of spirit, and who trembles at his word. This is prayerful and humble reading and obedience to the word of God. A third point, number three. We should have unwavering belief in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Unwavering belief in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Let's go to Second Peter for proof. Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one. <coughs> Verses 16 to 21. 2 Peter 1, 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of, of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We are dealing with eyewitness testimony. And when we consider the prophecies of Scripture, we should not consider them to be originating in human will. They originate by the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit spoke from God. If we are unconvinced of the Holy Spirit's inspiration of Scripture, we will not understand and obey. And those who preach and teach will not do so with confidence, they will not do so with courage. They will not do so with compassion for the souls of men. They won't do that. Because they don't actually believe the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. They think it's a religious book written by men many years ago. They have some insights into life. Some things you could take, some things you could leave. 
but nothing really for your soul and eternal salvation. This is why people have no confidence, they ignore and they neglect the Bible because they don't believe it's actually from the Holy Spirit of God. Now, when he says that they are from the Holy Spirit, which parts of the Bible does he mean? Look at chapter 3, 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Does he mean only the Old Testament or only the New Testament? Or does he mean the Old and the New Testaments? 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. The prophets are the prophets of the Old Testament. The apostles are the apostles of the New Testament. In this one statement here in verses 1 and 2, he has included the Old and the New Testaments. He does it again in chapter 3, verses 14 to 18. 2 Peter 3, 14. <clears throat> Old and New Testaments combined. Specifically, the Apostle Paul and the rest of the Scriptures. 3.14 Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest, being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. <clears throat> 15 says, Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Peter and Paul do not contradict each other. They are not enemies of each other. They are in agreement. That's why Peter says, Our beloved brother Paul, as well as the, the beloved brother of the church. He was given wisdom. Wisdom from where? Wisdom from God to write. And not only do false teachers distort his writings, they also distort the rest of the scriptures. If the rest of the scriptures are called the rest, then Paul's letters are called scriptures. The rest of the scriptures. We should believe then that the whole Bible, Old and New Testaments, were written by the Holy Spirit, by holy prophets and holy apostles. Point number four. Keep in mind the principle of harmony or non-contradiction. The principle of harmony or non-contradiction. Contradiction. Why do we need to keep harmony in mind? Non-contradiction. Because of the previous point, point number three, that the Holy Spirit wrote the whole Bible. If the Holy Spirit wrote the whole Bible, will the Holy Spirit contradict Himself? Will the Holy Spirit be two-faced? Will, will He tell the truth in one place and tell a lie in another place? Will He speak with a forked tongue? No, the Holy Spirit won't do that. That's why we have to keep this principle of harmony or non-contradiction in mind. This is known as the analogy of faith. Analogy of faith. Whatever the Bible says about the faith in one place harmonizes with the true faith in another place. The analogy means analyzing 
figuring out and understanding the harmony of the one true faith, whether we're studying Genesis or Peter, Second Peter, or First Corinthians, doesn't matter what we're studying, it all should harmonize. Now, to see that to be the case, let's use an example in Second Peter, if we are still there. <clears throat> we need to seek to harmonize within a particular book, within the books of the same author, that is, what if we are studying first and second Peter? He wrote both. So if something is unclear in second Peter, or if someone is seeking to undermine a verse in second Peter, well, let's see what Peter says in second Peter about that same subject. And also let's see what Peter says in first Peter. And then we could also go beyond that. Let's see if Peter and Paul are in harmony on this doctrine on this faith, on the belief. Let's see if the Old Testament is in harmony with Peter. This is how the principle of harmony is practiced. This is necessary because sometimes we'll come across a verse that will be an enigma to us. It'll be hard to figure out. What exactly is he saying? And if we do figure it out or think we have figured it out, we might think, well, then this verse contradicts this other one I read the other day in 1 Peter. 2 Peter contradicts 1 Peter. You might come to that false conclusion. But no, we have to analyze by making sure we read 2 Peter correctly and make sure we read 1 Peter correctly. Here it is, 2 Peter 3.9. This is the example. False teachers use 2 Peter 3.9 to teach free will and universal atonement. Free will and universal atonement from 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. <clears throat> he says the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What's he meaning? Why is God patient? Toward whom is he patient? Here it says toward you. Who are the you? Who are the addressees in this letter? The church. The you is not the whole world. The you is the church. Notice also patient toward you. If the Lord is patient toward us, what is the result? Verse 15 says so. Regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. That means when God is patient, the Lord is patient toward us, the result, the outcome is salvation. Is he going to save every person in the world? No. He's only being patient toward the ones who will be saved. Or who are saved. Further, 2 Peter 3.9 says, Not wishing for any to perish. <clears throat> Not wishing. So God doesn't wish. God doesn't desire. God doesn't want anyone in the whole world to perish. That's how this is taken. By free will interpreters. He doesn't want any to perish in the whole wide world. Throughout all history, from Adam until the end of the world, he wants nobody to perish, not wishing for any to perish. If that's the case, then everybody goes to heaven. Or, they say, not wishing means, you know, 
I, I, really, I really don't want this to happen. So uh, I've got a dilemma on my mind. And I, God, I lose sleep about it all the time. I can't eat sometimes. I have to cry sometimes in heaven. I have this great dilemma. I, I wish for everybody to go to heaven, but I have to give them free will. If I give them free will, then, then they'll love me. Then they will choose me. And then we'll have a swell, wonderful relationship forever. But I can't force them. I can't force them. I cannot make them. So God's wish is simply his unfulfilled, whimsical, emotional desire. But what actually happens is that many people go to hell because they simply don't exercise their free will. Is that what Peter is talking about here? Because he says that God wishes for all to come to repentance. Who are the all going to come to repentance? In that scenario, the last part of verse 9, it would assume that the election of God is not in the Bible and not even in Peter, not even in 2 Peter. It would assume that God does not give the gift of faith and repentance. And it assumes that God has not always had as his target, as his goal, his treasured possession to save them. But can these beliefs stand, stand up in Peter? No. We, we already saw in verse 15 that patience equals salvation. Also turn to chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1, one says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Who are the addressees? Those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. They received a faith. That means the faith was gifted. They didn't exert it. It was gifted to them. It didn't originate in them. It was a gift from heaven that descended into them by the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. It says it was granted. To be granted is to be given. To be given is to be gifted. He says further, we are called by his own glory and excellence. Called. Is this calling a general call, the preaching of the Bible call? Or is this calling the effectual call, the internal call, the call of the Holy Spirit? It says by his own glory and excellence. It doesn't say called us by his glory and excellence, and our free will. So this is the effective call, effectual call. And verse 4, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Granted again. What about verse 10? Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Calling. 
Going back to verse 3, he called us. But we need to make certain that he called and chose us. How can we make certain? By the fruit of our life. By the fruit of our life. That fruit is what he explained in verses 5 to 9. Fruit. So is Peter rejecting predestination, election? No. He's teaching it in chapter 1. To be consistent, the harmony of Scripture, we would have to say, he's also saying in 2 Peter 3, 9, that God will definitely save all of the elect, they will all come to repentance. Meantime, he's patient and is not destroying the world. Shall we also see in 1 Peter to show that Peter is consistent? It says in 1 Peter 1, 1, that the church in those regions, they are chosen. One one says chosen. <coughs> verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do children cause their own birth? No. So why would a spiritual child think that when the Bible says we are born again, that we caused our rebirth? We did not cause our birth, nor do we cause our rebirth. It has to come from God, who chooses us for such. 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, 8 and 9. 1 Peter 2, 8. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy people, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. <clears throat> verse 8 says they were appointed to be disobedient to the word verse 9 says but you the church you are a chosen race chosen by whom chosen by God and verse 9 effectually called out of darkness into his marvelous light <coughs> That means Peter believes in election. This is just one example of comparing Scripture with Scripture. Within a book and within the books of the same author to show harmony, not contradiction. The free will proponents of 2 Peter 3.9, they <coughs> have to ignore and distort if they treat these verses Distort 1 Peter 1 1, 1 3, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, 2 Peter 1 1 and 1 10. They have to ignore those verses or distort them to make free will true in 2 Peter 3 9. So always, 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 on any subject, compare the beliefs of Scripture or the verses of Scripture on that subject so that you are harmonizing that subject. <coughs> number five. Point number five. Scripture illuminates Scripture. Scripture illuminates Scripture. This is known as the analogy of Scripture. The analogy of Scripture. Therefore, use clear Scriptures 
to interpret unclear scriptures. This is often how this principle is used. Whenever we have a passage that is unclear, seems unclear, you're scratching your head trying to figure out what in the world is he talking about here. Well, (coughs) find the same subject in other places to illumine that subject. Our example takes us to Genesis 6. Genesis 6. Genesis 6, 1 to 4. Genesis 6, 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. An enigma is here. Who are the sons of God and the daughters of men? Who are they? Are the sons of God powerful men? Are the sons of God kings? Are the sons of God the sons of Seth from Adam? How about the daughters of men? Are the daughters of men the common women? Are the daughters of men those that were exploited by the kings? Who are these daughters of men? Are the daughters of men the descendants, the female descendants of Cain? Also son of Adam? Who are these daughters of men? Let's see what other scriptures say before we make a conclusion, um, present a conclusion. First, Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. 1 and verse 6. Job 1, 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The sons of God. This is the same phrase as Genesis chapter 6, 1 to 4. Sons of God. And Satan is among them, and all of them are before the Lord in heaven. (coughs) They present themselves before the Lord. Chapter 2, Job 2, verse 1. Job 2, 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. (coughs) How is Satan and the sons of God, how are they before the Lord in heaven? Who are they? Job 38. Job 38. Job 38, the Lord begins to speak and actually confront and humiliate Job. He confronts and humiliates Job. And actually, the the humiliation, because he was a man of faith, a righteous man, converted, it humbled him and he repented by chapter 42. Also, notice that God humiliated Job for his arrogance, temporary arrogance. And everyone since that time is able to read about Job's arrogance, temporary arrogance, and the need to repent. God humiliated him, and we have a record of Job being humiliated by God, put to shame by God, that he might repent, and he did repent. We'll start at verse 1. 
Remember, we're asking, who are the sons of God? Does this passage tell us, give us more indication who they are? Verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements since you know, or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? The sons of God are there. They are also called morning stars. They shouted for joy and they sang together at what point in history? When God laid the foundation of the earth. That would be Genesis chapter 1. The first day when God laid the foundation of the earth. And that foundation had water all over it and darkness. Then God said, let there be light and there was light. So these sons of God existed at that point and sang and shouted for joy. <clears throat> Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 4. Second Peter 2.4 For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And, and verse 5, And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. What's Peter describing? Is he not describing what happened before the flood and then the flood? Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, describes what happened before the flood. And then Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, through chapter 9, or the middle of chapter 9, describe the flood and the aftermath of the flood. What's the sequence that Peter uses here? It seems to be the sequence of Genesis 6. And he says, angels sinned, and then God did not spare the ancient world. The book of Jude now. Book of Jude. Jude verses 6 and 7. Jude verses 6 and 7. <coughs> and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Verse 6, it sounds like 2 Peter 2, verse 4. Correct? Jude, he does not recount the flood, but he does go on from the fall or the sin of the angels to Sodom and Gomorrah. Why did he skip the flood? What could be the reason he skipped the flood 
He's still in the book of Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah's chapters 18 and 19. What is the reason he may have skipped explaining the flood? Because of what he says in verse 7. Notice three or four words here. Just as. Why does he say just as? With what is he comparing Sodom and Gomorrah? With what is he comparing Sodom and Gomorrah? When he says just as. And then he says, and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these. Who is they? In the same way as these. Who is these? Who does he mean by they? Who does he mean by these? The clue is in verse 7. Indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Went after strange flesh. The obvious example is Sodom and Gomorrah. The men went after men, so that's strange flesh. Right? So how is he comparing? He says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah, they in the same way as these. Who's being compared here? In terms of indulging in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Verses 6 and 7. The angels went after the strange flesh of women. Angels are not supposed to marry women, intermarry with them. But they went after women in the same way as men went after men in Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's called gross immorality and strange flesh because it's not supposed to happen that way. It's supposed to be a man who marries a woman. Not angels and humans, not men with men, or any other combination. All right, we'll pause there for today with these points. That was point number five. Scripture illuminates Scripture. If a Scripture is unclear, see what the Scripture says on that subject elsewhere to see if other Scriptures shed light on the unclear scripture, the analogy of scripture. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.